0: Lord, as we open up your word right now that you gave to us, we're going to look at one of the most amazing stories in the life of Ruth, and we ask, God, that you'd open up our hearts, that we might learn everything that you want us to learn this morning. Unpack it for us, God, so that our hearts would be changed. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat, and I'm going to invite you to open up your Bibles to two different places uh, right from the beginning here, Judges chapter 2, and Ruth chapter 1. Ruth chapter 1, and Judges chapter 2. Judges is the book right before Ruth. So Judges 2, Ruth 1. Okay, now I'm going to ask you to get out of your comfort zone for just a minute, and I want you to take your shoes off. No, I'm not kidding. Take your shoes off. I mean, unless you're absolutely adamant about leaving your shoes on, take your shoes out for a minute. I want you to look at them. Now, if your shoes could talk this morning, where would they tell, what would they tell about where you've been? See, shoes have an amazing story, if you think about it. They record everywhere you go everything that you do, they hear everything that you say, they watch, they learn, they listen, and so it's one of those things that you put on every day, and just very quietly, if they were just recording everything about everything that you did, they would have an amazing story to tell, right? Okay, keep them off, and watch this video.
1: okay so I have a confession to make I'm a judgmental person you might not think it to look at me then again maybe you would if you're judgmental like me but I don't often take the time or energy to put myself in someone else's shoes I kind of thought it would be easier once I became a Christian but it's not it actually got harder but somewhere along the way I got the idea that it was my job to discern others' faults so that I could steer them on the right path. Wait a minute, is that what the Bible says? You see, at the end of the day, I'm really just a selfish person. My thoughts and my actions, they're usually based on my own little world and how I perceive it. It's easier just to look at the little clues about people, feed them into my own little formula, and spit out my analysis of who I think they are and how right or wrong their behavior is. The real problem is that I get so fixated on people's actions, I completely miss out on their heart. I don't put myself in their shoes at all. I want them to wear mine. when I stop to look at the core of someone's behavior I realize they're not so different from me they have the same struggles that I do the same desire to connect to something deeper than this physical world around us they just have a unique expression of what it means to be human that is the frustrating beauty of God's children so unique yet so alike there was one person who really understood this whole idea of putting yourself in someone else's shoes. He could look past the stench of a common fisherman and see the rock that the church would be built on. He watched as a prostitute poured perfume on his feet, and he rebuked the religious elites who whispered, Wasteful. He looked at a woman caught in the very act of adultery and defended her, by challenging the stone throwers to look at their own hearts instead. His name is Jesus, and his example stands before us. So I have to ask myself, whose shoes am I being asked to walk in today?
0: All right, still got your shoes? I want you to look at them one more time. I want you to do something else I'm not going to ask you to do anything weird look at someone else's shoes just look at their shoes have you ever walked in that person's shoes? none of us have ever walked in anyone else's shoes and yet how quick are we to sometimes throw a stone at where those shoes go we're going to look at a story today you can leave your shoes off I'm going to leave mine off today And we're going to look at the story of Ruth's mother-in-law. Her name was Naomi. And Naomi went on a journey, and her shoes took her somewhere that I think her entire life she wondered if it was the right thing to do and the right place to go because her life turned out to be very tragic. Okay, if you have Ruth open, we're going to unpack this. This is one of the most amazing books. I've never preached on a book of Ruth. And I've had more fun unpacking this, so grab a pencil Grab your Bible, open up a Bible if you don't have your Bible with you because we're going to unpack this and feel free to write in margins about all the stuff you're going to learn today. Okay, verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled. You know, I started to ask, why would God tell us that? What's the big deal about why is it taking place in the days the judges ruled? Well, turn to Judges chapter 2 for just a moment. Judges 2, verse 16 tells us what was going on during the times of the judges and then we'll understand what's going on in Ruth's life here. Okay, verse 16, Judges two sixteen. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers. Following other gods and serving and worshiping them, they refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Okay, what is this telling us? It's telling us really simply that there was a time not all that unlike the time that we're facing now, that when, you, when people choose not to follow God and begin to take God out of things in their life, that it will be replaced by something else. And we live in a time right now in our country that we're trying to get God out of everything, and what we don't realize is that when you take God out, then something will take its place. And it seems like in our country right now, that as we take God out of the picture, the thing that is starting to take the place of it is self. I want to be my own God. I want to decide what's right for me. And we talk about tolerance. That I'll tolerate what you do, you tolerate what I do. Don't tell me how to live my life, I won't tell you how to live your life. And the world of absolutes is quickly fading and what's happening even now we're seeing it but we also saw it in the time of the judges that when God was taken out something did fill it now what was it that filled it let's go on a little bit further there was a famine in the land that's all I want to cover there was a famine in the land what big deal there was a famine in the land oh no it was a huge deal here's why it was a huge deal. Because at the time as they took God out, it was a time when they took other gods and brought them in. And that's a little hard for us to understand is this kind of idolatry, but it was really huge back then. And they began to worship the God of Baal and they would actually bring a small God, a small image of Baal into their homes. Now, Baal was the God of fertility and had a counterpart whose name was Ashtoreth. And these were the fertility gods, and this is what it meant. That if you paid homage to them, and you worshipped these gods, and sacrificed to these idols, these idol gods, that they would bless your land, and the land would produce bumper crops. And so as the people were leaving God, these were the Israelites, remember, the God-fearing Israelites, were leaving their relationship with God, replacing it with the Baal God so that they would have great crops. And what was the result? What happened in the land? Famine. It was was a famine. And so it wasn't working because ultimately it's not any kind of a God. It's the Lord who's going to make a difference as we're going to see later. So the writer just wants us to see what was going on in the hearts and lives of the people and now what's to follow? Okay, so now, there was a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now, this is a huge deal. See, we've got to go back into Bible history for this, okay? Because Moab is a really significant country When the Israelites came out of Egypt, remember that? They came up to the land of Moab and they sent a delegation to the king at that time and said, may we have permission to pass through your land on the way to Israel? And they said, no. Well, from that day on, things changed. And actually, God decided and said this, that up until the 10th generation... No person from Moab would ever be allowed into the assembly of God. None of them would ever be allowed to stand in God's presence. Number one, because they were a godless nation and they believed in the God of Chemosh, okay, which was more idol worship, if you will. And so now here's what you have that's kind of ironic. God said, don't intermarry with them, have nothing to do with them, don't go there, And you have this guy, Elimelech, who says there's a famine, let's go to Moab. Now this is where when you talk about shoes, everybody in Israel would have been going, what are you doing? Elimelech, what what are you doing? Don't, Don't go to Moab. But he did, he went to Moab. Which was probably against everyone's counsel Now, what was his name again? Look at verse 3. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons. But before we go farther, the name Elimelech was amazing. See if this rings a bell. Just break down his name. Eli Malek. Okay, Elimelech. Eli. Does this this ring a bell? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Does that ring a bell? Jesus was on the cross... And he cried out, my God, my God, Eloi, Eloi, my God, my God. Now, Eli bore that name. See, in the Old Testament, you weren't named Ed or Joe or Tom. You were named something that would define you. Like Naomi means pleasant. And it really was pleasant. So you'd say, what's your name? My name is Pleasant. What's your name? Not Elimelech. It's my God. And then Melech means king. So now, just can you picture this? What's your name? My God, the king. And he goes over to Moab into a a country that doesn't even believe in God. What's your name? My God, the king. And I'm sure they took a step back. Go home, please. We don't want you. We don't believe in your God. We don't want your God. We don't want you, Elimelech. But Elimelech goes and he takes his family. But then what happens is that he dies. Verse 3, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malan and Kilian also died and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Now if you were going to pass judgment on Naomi for walking over to Moab, could you? Couldn't you say, "Uh, Naomi, what did you expect? If you're going to go to a place that God said don't go to, and you're going to marry people that God said don't intermarry with them, and then they die, are you surprised? And I'm sure Naomi's heart was not only broken, but now she's in trouble. See, they lived in a time... There was no public aid. There was no health care. There was no Blue Cross Blue Shield. There was no aid for them. If you were a widow, it was one of the worst curses that could ever befall you. You lost your security. You lost your standing in the public place. You had nothing. But now it's compounded because the two daughters-in-law she has are from Moab and don't know the Lord, don't believe in the Lord, as we'll see in just a moment. They didn't. And so Naomi is in a country where she probably shouldn't be. Her son's intermarried. Now she's destitute and has nothing. Just, here's what I want you to do this morning. Walk in her shoes. How are you feeling about now? Verse 6, when she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. Did you catch, remember at the beginning when I told you about the famine? Now who provided for them? God did, because God is the only one that can provide And it was a testimony that God was faithful to his people even when we, including us at this time of day, uh, in this day of age, when we stray, God still loves us and provides his grace is amazing, folks. God's grace is overwhelming, but sometimes we can't see it. Hold that spot in Ruth and I want you to start turning over to Matthew chapter 1. Where this is an amazing story of God's grace is that God was up to something that Naomi could not see. Her entire life she never saw it. She knows that she and her husband went over to this foreign country, came back destitute, and went through more suffering and struggles and problems and could never see what God was doing. Okay, Matthew chapter 1. This is why this is so amazing. Now, chapter 1 is a genealogy. And you probably don't get excited about genealogies. I don't either. Except this genealogy is amazing. There are four women in this genealogy. And what's amazing about these women is is we're going to see God's grace in an incredible way. Because look at verse 5 for a minute. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Does Rahab ring a bell? Joshua, when Joshua sends these spies into Jericho to spy out the land, they stay with a prostitute named Rahab. And God, in His grace, spared Rahab and put Rahab into the lineage for his son Jesus. Alright, now, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was who? Ruth. Okay, but you see, here's the amazing part. This is why we've got we to take a step back from the story. God had a plan. God had a plan and knew that Ruth was going to be in that lineage. And God, in his grace, sent Elimelech over there, and it was the worst tragedy that could happen. And they might have stayed over there. They might have just stayed there and lived. So God calls home Elimelech and the two sons, Malan and Killian. And so now you have have Naomi who's destitute, no hope, nothing, and says, I think we should go home. And so what does she say? Verse 8. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead, and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud, and said to her, We'll go back with you to your people. All right, I don't want you to miss this word. Uh, It's a word, kindness. May the Lord show kindness. This is a great word. Uh, I, I know you're probably not excited about words, but this is what that word kindness means. It's a measure of God's grace towards those that are undeserving. Now, in this context, what it meant was her sons, Naomi's two sons, married these Moabite women. And God tells us, you can read about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that these two Moabite women were covered under God's grace because of their husbands who were believers. And God showed kindness to them. And so, Naomi's blessing to these two women was, may the Lord show kindness. Even though you're not part of God's covenant, may you be covered in God's grace and kindness for the whole rest of your life. It's not any different, friends, that still today, sometimes believers in Christ marry an unbeliever. And God says, don't do not Do it. Happens all the time. Believers marry non-believers. But what God tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is that the unbelieving spouse is covered under the grace and blessing of God because of the believing spouse. That God will continue to shower his grace and his love upon your family because of the believing spouse. And so here in the Old Testament, Naomi was saying, may God show you undeserved kindness and grace even though they were not believers. And we know that. We'll find it out in just a minute here. Okay, verse 11. Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband, even if I thought there was still hope for me. Even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. Okay, a couple things in here. One, you might be going, I don't get that. What do you mean if she she got married and then they only had kids and then they'd wait to marry those kids? Here's what it was about. Under Levitical law, and you can read about this in Leviticus 25, that when a husband would die and leave a widow, God commanded for the sake of that widow so that she not be destitute to then be married to the husband's brother who will continue to help her have kids, but more than that, would care for her as his own spouse so that she would never ever remain outside of God's grace, uh, out of God's blessing, and out of God's care through that husband. So this is what she was saying. Hey, are you going to wait till I have more kids and then marry those kids? Forget it, that's not going to work. But there was another problem. If she brings these two young women from Moab back to Israel, God already told the Israelites, you're not to intermarry with them. So she would be giving them, if you will almost like a judgment for their life to never get married again because no one from Israel was allowed to marry them. And so you got this this issue. So she's saying, stay here. Don't come back with me. Just stay here. And then she says this. Did you catch at the end of verse 13? It's more bitter for me than you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. All right, here's where I want you to do this again. Put yourself into Naomi's shoes. And she's saying, the Lord's hand is now against me. This is what that means. It's an expression. It's an expression in Hebrew that means this. When you're standing in a courtroom and you are defending yourself, there is someone on the other side of the aisle accusing you. The expression, the Lord's hand is against me, is that God has gone to the other side of the aisle and is accusing Naomi of wrongdoing. And here's Naomi on this side saying, I'm better because God himself is against me and has set himself up against me because of what I did. See, now let me ask you a question. If God lines up against you, do you have any hope? Who's going to come to your aid? Who can possibly help you? And so she's saying to these daughters, these daughters-in-law, you don't want to hang out with me because the Lord's hand's against me and, and, and he's accusing me. You want to get away from me. Don't go with me. You'll be under the same judgment in my life. Verse 16. Oh, verse 14. At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her, what? Her gods. You see, they were still. These daughters-in-law still believed in their gods and never embraced Naomi's God. But Ruth, 16, replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I'll die. And there I will be buried May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Boy, that's a key moment in this whole book. You know know what Ruth just did? Ruth turned her back on her gods, on her family's gods, on her way of life as an ungodly person, and turned her heart to seek God and to follow God, and said, I declare this day that your God will be my God from now on. And then, this is how you know it was amazing, she took the next step, and she said, may that God hold me accountable, severely accountable, if I ever abandon you. And so not only did she profess to know God, but then she calls down God saying, judge me God, if I don't follow through with what I'm declaring this day so Naomi goes okay come on along but that was a turning point I think even and this is where God comes in God's hand was upon this young woman and even though she came from an unbelieving husband or an unbelieving nation in an unbelieving land and Here's the boot, okay? This is, where, this is one of those little insider things that's really cool I found. Remember I told you before that in Moab, that for 10 generations, they were never allowed in the assembly of the Lord. Remember that? Ruth was the 11th generation. Isn't that cool? See, God held to his word. And then Ruth was the 11th generation. And not only did God then invite her Over into the land of Israel, but then named her out of grace to be in the lineage of David. Ruth was the great grandma of King David. And then 14 generations later, she's whatever that is great, 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 whatever it is of Jesus himself. Here's what I want you to start seeing in this it doesn't matter where your shoes have walked. Doesn't matter where you've been. That when you turn to God, God's grace covers it. In some of the most amazing ways, God covers it. Verse 19. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? You know why? Because she left pleasant, as her name says. She was pleasant. The Israelite women would wear colorful, bright outfits. And when she came back, she was probably all in black, head covered, downcast, grieving, mourning. And they meant it. Can, can that be Naomi? She's not pleasant anymore. And look at what Naomi says, verse 20. Don't call me pleasant, Naomi. She told them, call me Mara. Mara means bitterness of soul. It's a word in the scriptures. I had fun with this. It's, it's a Hebrew word, Mara. Mara means at the depth of of your heart, the very core, the absolute depth was bitter. She was hurting so bad. And said, I want you to call me who I really am now. I'm embittered. Why? And she uses the word for God, because the Almighty has made my life bitter. This is the word El Shaddai, which you've heard of. El Shaddai. Amy Grant sang a song El Shaddai years ago. El Shaddai means this. It is God Almighty, but what it implies is that God can do anything. That God is able to do all things, and when she called on him with this term, it is, my life is bitter, because you, God, standing on this side of the aisle, stood against me, your hand was against me, and you, God, who could have done something about it, chose not to. And now she's saying, my life is embittered because of you, God, and what you did. Verse 21, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune on me. You know, I started thinking about all this. You know, there's a lot of hurting that's going on. Think of Michigan right now, over 15.4% unemployment. Plus a lot of those who weren't employed yet, like college grads, or those who never took benefits. There's a lot of people hurting. What's amazing about God is that when we're hurting so often, we blame God. And what God does is on the other side, raises up people to bless. Now, I don't know which side you're on. You may be on this side that you've gone through tragedy in your life, you've gone through suffering in your life, you've gone through a lot of struggles in your life, and you can't seem to understand why. Do you know that most of that suffering, as I went through the scriptures and began to look at each case, that suffering oftentimes has to do with somebody else's salvation. It's amazing. Sometimes it's our own salvation. That God knows our hearts, that our hearts would be led astray, and so God allows suffering to happen to keep us close to Jesus. Other times, like in the case of Naomi, her life was a life of suffering. And what she had no idea is that God chose her in the lineage to bring salvation to the whole world. And so sometimes, most of the time, that our suffering has to do with somebody's eternal salvation. Because I can tell you, some of you have gone through things in your life that you're going to get to heaven and you're going to say, I want to know why. God's going to say, I'll show you. And God's going to replay that time in your life that you went through that intense suffering. And he's going to show you from an eternal perspective what what he was doing. And you know what's going to happen? You're going to go like this. I'm sorry. I didn't know. You're right. You didn't know. Naomi had to go through this loss In order for that blessing God may call you you may be on the other side see God may have blessed you amazingly not just monetarily God may have blessed you in so many different ways do you realize that God is blessing you to come alongside others God isn't blessing you for you God isn't blessing you amazingly so you can say woohoo look at my life isn't it good God is blessing you to walk in their shoes. Look down again. Look at somebody else's shoes. Just look at their shoes. God's asking you to walk in someone else's shoes. The greatest example we've ever seen of this is Jesus. He could have stayed in heaven and saved us, but he didn't. He came down to this earth and he experienced everything that you and I experience except sin. Heartache and rejection and, and death and just hurting. I mean, he was praying in the garden and his blood was coming out with drips of blood. It was just coming out of his skin. Doctors say that can happen if you're under the most intense pain humanly possible, that blood can come out of your pores. He understands that pain. He experienced that pain. He was rejected. Why? For our salvation. Isn't that amazing? He didn't suffer for him. He suffered for our salvation. And you may go through things in your life that you can't make sense of and you're hurting and you're struggling and there was a time in the past that you go, that was the worst time of my life and I still can't make sense of it. It probably has to do with somebody's salvation. Friends, I want to encourage you, if you're on this side of the aisle and God has blessed you, my goodness, you start looking at other shoes this week and seeing how you can bless someone else. Because somebody else is walking in these shoes that you've never walked in, that you can't imagine walking in, and are hurting, and are open to you coming alongside them to walk with them. And understand, and they're right in front of you, friends. They're right in front of you. Let's pray. Lord, what an amazing lesson And you've called us both to be open. Those who have plenty that you've blessed to open up their hearts and to bless generously with time and compassion and understanding, not judgment. Sometimes monetary, sometimes just with a heart, an open heart. And you've called them to reach out to somebody who is in need right now. Maybe we don't even know who they are, God. I just pray that this week we would look down at shoes. And see someone else who's needing us to walk in those shoes with them. And for those that are hurting, Father, I just pray that their their hearts would be open to having somebody else walk alongside them. You understand suffering, God. How can we thank you enough for your grace, your kindness, and your goodness that you've given to us? Bless us today, Jesus, with everything that we need. In your name we pray and all of God's people said, Amen.